Well, good morning. I am uh, excited to have the opportunity to share from God's Word with you guys this morning um, while Pastor Sam and his family are enjoying a well-deserved vacation. Um, This morning, our text is once again from the lectionary. We're going to be looking in Romans chapter 8, if you want to turn there with me, uh, verses 31 through 39. Um, Romans, written by Paul, is a letter to the church in Rome. Um, And this is uh, probably one of my favorite chapters in Scripture, so I'm excited to get to share from it this morning with you. Um, So let's start in verse 31. It says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for his all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor death, depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Dear God, I thank you for this morning and this opportunity to spend some time in your word and share, hopefully, uh, the words that you... um, would have your, your church to hear this morning. In your name we pray, amen. There's a uh, great story that illustrates the concept of grace that uh, we read about in our passage today in Romans 8, written by Charles Stanley. He wrote, One of my more memorable seminary professors had a practical way of illustrating to his students the concept of grace. At the end of his evangelism course, he would distribute the exam and caution the class to read it all the way through before beginning to answer it. This caution was written on the exam as well. As we read the test, it became unquestioningly clear to each of us that we had not studied nearly enough. The further we read, the worse it became. About halfway through, audible groans could be heard throughout the lecture hall. On the last page, however, was a note that read, you have a choice. You can either complete the exam as given or sign your name at the bottom and in doing so, receive an A for the assignment. We sat there stunned, Stanley said. Was he serious? Just sign it and get an A? Slowly the point dawned on us, and one by one we turned in our tests and silently filed out of the room. When I talked with the professor about it afterwards, he shared some of the reactions he had received through the years. Some students began to take the exam without reading it all the way through, and they would sweat it out for the entire two hours of class before reaching the last page. Others read the first two pages, became angry, turned the test in blank, and stormed out of the room without signing it. They never realized what was available to them, and as a result, they lost out totally. One fellow, however, read the entire test, including the note at the end, but decided to take the exam anyway. He did not want any gifts. He wanted to earn his grade, and he did. He made a C+, but he could have easily had an A. Our text today, Romans 8, is the last line in the test of life. All who read the words and believe them pass God's test with flying colors. They get an A, so to speak. Some hear about God's holiness and give up ever trying to make the grade. 
Some of those spend an entire lifetime angry at God who desires to give them grace. And of course, a lot of people depend upon morality and good deeds to get them into heaven, and they do their best work their way to win God's approval. Unfortunately, nothing less than a perfect score will do, and then only by God's grace can any of us achieve a perfect score. So like Charles Stanley's professor, God makes an offer that seems to be too good to be true. But the truth is, it's the only question that ultimately matters. Would you take the grace of God or reject it? Let's read Romans 8, 31 through 32 again. It says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? This verse says, if God is for you, the Greek word for if, in this case, doesn't mean that God's being for us is a possibility. Instead, it's a certainty. If the clock at work tells you it's 12.30 p.m., you might say, if I'm going to eat lunch today, I'd better get going. More than likely, that statement isn't about the possibility of lunch. It's about eating lunch. No, this statement isn't about the possibility of God's love for us. It's about the certainty of God's love for us. Take a moment and let that sink in. God is for us. God is for you. Not was, not will be, but is right now. There is no waiting. There's no probationary period. There's no small print to wade through. Right now, God is for you. His availability to you is not dependent on whether or not you've been good or bad. In fact, his availability to you is not dependent on you at all. No, this God is for you right now. The cross is proof that God is for us. Verse 32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Sometimes people read through verse 32 too quickly. God did not spare his own son. These words are too short to do justice to what happened. Can just one sentence summarize a sacrifice so great? For an example, on a less spiritual scale, let's take the sacrifice of a mother whose young soldier's son goes off to war and is killed performing his duties. You might sum up the sacrifice of another person's lifetime by simply saying, her son died in war. Mull it over for a moment. Her son died in war. Only six words the sacrifice of a lifetime. When she first discovered she was to be a mom, she felt the nausea for weeks. She connected with this baby first through the morning sickness. Soon when the nausea passed, she felt the kick in her side. It was common for him to wake him up, to wake her up in the middle of the night. Toward the end of the pregnancy, she hardly slept at all. Eventually, she felt labor pains and screamed in anger. Agony, not anger. Moments before she saw the most precious sight she'd ever laid eyes on. She nursed this baby boy. She gave up sleep for this boy. She held this fragile infant. She changed his diapers, washed the diapers, dried the diapers, folded the diapers. She bounced him through colic and rocked him through fevers. She cheered his first steps and wiped away the tears and the blood from his first scrape. She provided the discipline. She read the books. She took him to school. She learned as many spelling words as he did. She explained math and history and the mystery of girls. She watched him grow tall and strong, and she provided him socks and shoes for every step of the way. She learned the rules of his favorite sport and the favorite meal for his favorite girl. She read the newspapers with the frightening headlines. She cried when he 
She wrote the letters and prayed for the miracles. She provided the perfect weekend for that last Thanksgiving at home. And she answered the door when the officer came with the news that her baby boy had died in a ditch at the hands of an enemy who didn't give a moment's thought about the man he had shot. And so comes the sentence, her son died in war. Can a six-word sentence really tell the story? No way. So too comes the sentence Paul gives us. Hear these words. God did not spare his own son. Paul uses only seven words to describe the heartbreak of heaven. We read them too quickly in a matter of a second or two. We must slow down and realize that there's no way any of us would ever be able to comprehend what it was like for Jesus to take off his robe of light, leave the halls of for himself, an organism buried in the darkness of a peasant girl's womb, so that one day after all the words, after all the teaching, after all the miracles, he could die the most horrible death known to man, so that men might finally know God, so that we might be able to have a relationship with him. God did not spare his own son. God is for us. My, how God is for us. The cross is the unspeakable, indescribable proof that God is for you. And the reality is, with God for us, there is no one left to condemn us. Let's read through verses 31 through 35 again. It says, What shall we say then in response to these things for us? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Four times the question is asked, and each time the implied answer is resounding. Who is against us? No one. God, after all, has given his son and will give all things to us through him. Who will bring a charge against us? No one. God himself has justified us and has already declared us to be in the right. Who will condemn us? No one. Jesus has died, been raised and exalted, and intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from his love? No one. This time there are many contenders that might try. We see the idea of hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness, danger or sword. But the note of victory sounds out. Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in King Jesus. The theologian N.T. Wright said these verses play out like a symphony entering its final moments and getting faster and faster towards the end with phrases taken from the earlier parts of the music being whirled around in triumph. The is a summary of the whole theme of Romans chapters 5 through 8. Presented now not as the step-by-step argument that it has been, but rather a thrilling rhetorical statement, shouting out, look what God has done. Look what the Messiah has done and is still doing as we speak. Many things that threaten to separate you from the powerful love which reaches out through the cross and resurrection and learn that they are all beaten foes. Learn to dance and sing with joy to celebrate the victory of God. 
The end of Romans 8 deserves to be written in letters of fire on the living tablets of our heart. The last two verses of the chapter, verses 38 through 39, are a powerful declaration that since God is for us, so much so as that we, as if, so much so that as we read in Romans chapter 5, that God demonstrated his own love for us, that we were, while we were still sinners, God before we chose God, Christ died for us. Because of this, there's absolutely nothing, nothing that can separate us from God's love. God sent his son to the cross so that we could have a relationship with him. So let me say it again, because of that, there's absolutely nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Let these words of Paul from Romans 8, 38-39 sink in. It says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Last week when we were together, Pastor Sam talked about our inheritance as part of God's family and the joy and the responsibility we have to live that great hope out, live out this great hope that we possess. These words from Paul about grace, about there being no condemnation, about God being so for us that he gave the life of his son so he could be in relationship with us, so that absolutely nothing can get in the way of us knowing his core of the gospel message. These words proclaim loudly the source of the hope we have. If we lived our lives like we were in possession of such a great hope, if we lived out our day-to-day existence rooted in the reality that God is really for us, just imagine, just imagine what the world would say. So as Shannon and Greg come to sing our closing song, I would encourage you to take a moment or two to think about how differently your life could look in the grace of God in the grace of the God who is for you, in the grace and the love of God who did not spare his own son for the sake of our relationship with him. So as you go about your day, today and the rest of the week, I just encourage you to remember and and remember with joy that God is for you. He did not spare his own son to get that message to you. Live in that joy, live in that hope, live in the power of that love this week.